Well, good morning, Redemption North Mountain. Uh, as you can see, I am clearly not Josh Watt. Uh, I did not get taller and less attractive overnight, but uh, I got a text from Josh about 8 o'clock last night, hey, can you come and preach? And in the missions world, there's an old saying that you need to be ready to preach, pray, sing, or die. And so that's good, because if I preach, you need to pray. If Chandler asked me to sing, everybody would die, and you would show up, and there would be nobody at your church next week. So I told Josh uh, this week, actually, that if he ever needed help, he could let me know, and I should have been way more clear on the help that I was willing to give. Uh, usually that exceeds 12 hours notice, but uh, Josh is down with a really gnarly tooth injury and is having trouble talking, and so you guys get me this morning. Uh, my name is Blake Williams. I'm a pastor at Heritage Church over in Scottsdale, and a couple years ago, I was up in Colorado with Caleb Campbell, who's the head pastor at Desert Springs, and we were evaluating a uh, church planter evaluation group called Stadia, and as a part of that, we were watching how they worked with church planters, and they placed us in a group where we evaluated a couple from Phoenix, and that happened to be Josh and Aubrey. And while we were sitting there, Caleb and I both said, this is potentially an answer to prayer because we had been praying for years for God to send church planners to this area of the valley. And so as we sat with them throughout the week, we were like, they're incredible and we want them in North Phoenix. And so they said, we want, you know, we want to plan out by Gateway. And we said, that's dumb. You shouldn't do that. You should really plan up here. And fortunately, God had that in mind. And so I am standing in the midst of an answered prayer. So this is awesome for me to be here, uh, to see what God is doing through Redemption North Mountain and how he's continued to bless Josh in the midst of this. So thankful to be here. Uh, I put a picture of my family up here so you guys can see my family. This is my wife, Brittany, and our four kids. Stella is next to me on my left. She is seven. Addison's on my lap. She turns three in a couple weeks. Reese is sandwiched in between us, and she just turned five. And then little Blake is on my wife's lap, and he just turned one. So we have seven, five, three, and one, and three of those birthdays are within eight days in October. So my sanity has just now returned, which is great because the month of October is a little rough in our house, but uh, huge blessing. Love my bride, love my kiddos, and so uh, thankful. And Josh joked that when we were pregnant with Blake, she's like, well, if you end up with another girl, you already have four arranged marriages. We got the boys all taken care of, so we might be three for four. We'll see. But I'm going to change gears here a little bit. I want to, uh, by way of introduction, tell a story. So in March of 1909, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, there was a project that was undertaken that up to that point was going to be a marvel of engineering. They spent over three years constructing what was thought to be an unsinkable ship. And the RMS Titanic launched three years later on April 15th of 1912. And it went from Southampton, and the goal was to go to New York City. And as we're all aware, thanks to Leo and Kate, it did not make it. And one of the things that was amazing as I was looking at this was everything that they put into the ship. So the way the ship was constructed and how it eventually sank, because less than five hours into this initial journey, it struck an iceberg in the North Atlantic, and over the course of a few hours, the ship sank. Now, there were 2,224 souls on board the ship, and when they launched the ship, they had 48 lifeboats that were supposed to be on the boat. 
But because they took up room and made the ship less aesthetically pleasing, they decided to pull it so they only had 20 on there. And then in the midst of the chaos as the ship was going down, four of those were inoperable. They couldn't get them to launch. And so they had 16 ships, which in theory could have saved 1,100 people. But because they were worried that those would sink, they only loaded those about halfway. And so two hours later, when the RMS Carpathia showed up, they only loaded 715 people onto that ship, which means that 1,500 people met a watery grave in the North Atlantic because there were people who were unprepared or thought they were prepared and were not. So how does this happen? How does a seemingly unsinkable ship sink? Well, what they thought was impenetrable turned out to have some gaps in it. The ship was composed of sheets of steel that were six feet by 30 feet. They were an inch and a half thick. They were held together by over 1,200 tons of iron and steel trivets. They overlapped them in order to create more security, and they thought that there was nothing in the world that could puncture or dent or damage these things. On the bottom of the ship, there were 16 watertight compartments. And when they hit the iceberg, it dented it. So not like the movie where there's a huge gash ripped in the ship, but they dented it enough where water was taken into five of those compartments. Now, had it only been four, the ship could have stayed afloat. But because that fifth one took on water, it eventually sank and all of these people perished. Now, it's challenging because you look at multiple things. They believed that they were prepared. They put in the work. They did a bunch of the things that they should have done that should have made the ship unsinkable. They had people on the lookout for this. But because they thought that it was unsinkable, they didn't equip them with the things that they needed. The lifeboats were left off the boat because why bring a lifeboat on something that's unsinkable? And it only happened that when they faced the actual judgment, when they faced the crisis, they realized they were actually not as prepared as they hoped. And in the passage that we read this morning, we see something very similar. We see some that were prepared, and we see some that weren't. And we're going to talk about what God is trying to teach us in the midst of that. But before I jump into this text a little bit this morning, I'm going to ask that you pray with me. King Jesus, I thank you for uh, this text. Thank you for the challenges that it brings. I thank you for the opportunity to be here, as I said, standing in the midst of an answered prayer and being able to bring the word. I do pray for Josh that you help to heal his mouth and everything that's going on and that uh, that pain would subside and that he would be able to get that figured out sooner rather than later. And Lord, I pray for uh, the rest of the Redemption Network. I thank you for the work that they're doing uh, around the valley. I thank you for Tyler and his leadership and for the vision that he has for uh, this network of churches. I thank you for other churches that are faithfully preaching your gospel across the valley. Lord, there are so many people uh, in need of you. And we pray that uh, more and more would continue to push out, that you would have more people uh, like Josh that would step up and answer the call to plant churches, uh, to minister to those who need it. And Lord, this morning as I open your word, I pray that I would get out of your way, that my words would be your words, and that your words would find fertile soil in the hearts of the people that are in this room, and that God, as we are hearing your word, as we're challenged, as we're convicted, um, that we wouldn't shy away, but that we would push into that pain, that we would see what it is you're trying to reveal to us, and that we would take steps to move in obedience to your will. Lord, go with us now as we enter in. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. So in the passage we read this morning, it starts off with a then. 
It's giving us a time frame for when something is going to happen. And what it's referring to is the return of Jesus. In Matthew 24, you see a handful of different examples that Jesus is talking about. We don't know the day or the hour. And there's four separate times in chapter 24 where he gives us that exact same encouragement. We don't know when the new kingdom is coming. And in verse 13 this morning, we see, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So this then that it's talking about is this unexpected return of Christ in power and in glory. And he is comparing it to these 10 virgins or 10 bridesmaids. You're going to read in other translations. And what he's saying is that the kingdom of heaven can be prepared or can be compared to these 10 virgins. And he gives a couple of these examples throughout Matthew where he is saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and he's trying to paint a picture for those who he's teaching to help them understand something that to that point is incomprehensible. So the way that he sets this up is he gives us a story about bridesmaids. And so I'm going to give the different component parts of the story so that we're all on the same page. The bridegroom is Christ. He is coming back for his bride, who is the church. The virgins or the bridesmaids are those who are within the church. They are waiting with the bride, expecting Christ's return. They are waiting for this in the midst of it. And the wedding feast that they're going to, that they're all preparing for, is this entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so when we look at these different elements, we're going to talk about each of them, but there's another element that we'll spend a lot more time on, and that's talking about uh, the torches. And I'll get to that here in a little bit, but I want to explain what wedding feasts look like because they're different than how we would experience them today. So weddings in the ancient Near East had three component parts to them. The first part is the negotiation. So you would have the father of the groom and the father of the bride, and they would sit down like Jerry Maguire and Bob Sugar, and they would start hashing this thing out. Now, the expectation was that the father of the groom would pay a bride price to the father of the bride. Now, the reason he was paying that was because the bride, who was living in her father's home, was no longer going to live in her father's home. So now, all of the service that she had, all of the work that she did, all of those things would need to be replaced. They would need to be outsourced. And so there was a payment that was expected in the midst of that. So once they arranged this marriage, once they came to terms on these things, the next set uh, or the next step in this process was the betrothal period. So the groom would have this ceremonial march, and he would march from his home with his friends to the bride's house. And they would all march together, and they would show up at the bride's house, and in this would be the ceremony. Now, the ceremony is similar to what we experience in weddings today. There would be an exchange of vows, and they would make their commitments to one another. And this became the legally binding piece of the contract of marriage for them. But at this point is where it's really different. The bridegroom would go back and he would prepare a place. He would prepare a home for his bride. He would get a job and he would secure everything so that when he brought his bride home, there was a secure home. And I'm gonna flip over to John chapter 14 really quick to give this picture of what's actually happening here. John chapter 14, starting in verse one says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is what's happening. This is the betrothal period. He is going, he is preparing a place for us, and he is going to come back. There is certainty in that, and I hope that you find rest and you find reprieve in that fact that we know Jesus is coming back. 
That's one of the many benefits to having scripture in our hand is that we know the end of the story. We know who wins. And so in this story, we begin to see this peace coming, okay? So the bridegroom has gone to prepare a place. Now the third element is when he has secured a home. This could have taken a week, a month, or even up to a year. Once he has secured that, he gets all of his friends together, and they begin this march in the middle of the night usually. So they would grab their torches, and they would march through the streets of the city, and they would begin to tell everybody, get ready for the feast. Get ready for the wedding party. Everybody come and join us. And everybody from the community would join in, and they would celebrate together. Now, weddings, again, are very different in that they would have about a week-long wedding feast. Now, there was a season where my wife and I, it was a couple years ago, we got invited to, or I was officiating a bunch of weddings, and we tallied it up at one point in that year. There was 18 weddings. And we looked at each other and we're like, we don't have 18 friends. How did this happen? And we started thinking through, okay, that is rehearsal dinners, that's weddings, that's, you know, all these nights that we're having to account for sitters and all these things. And I was like, well, the good news is it's not a week-long wedding feast, because if we took up 18 weeks of our year, we would get nothing done. And the way these feasts work was in the very beginning, everybody would come and celebrate. Think back to the first miracle that Jesus did. And in the beginning of his ministry, he turns water into wine. And what do they say to him at the party? The host of the party is complimented because he saved the best wine for last. Now, usually what would happen is at the beginning of the feast, you'd bring out the best stuff, the best wine, the best food, and you would get people drunk and you would get them full of food. And then when they were drunk and couldn't taste anything anymore, you would bring out the garbage wine and they would begin drinking that. Now, these parties would last a week. And at the very end of this, what would happen is the best man, who is one of these groomsmen, would take the hand of the groom and the hand of the bride and he would place them in, the, in one another. And then they would go together to the new home and they would consummate the marriage. So this is the conclusion of the wedding. So this is how weddings are laid out in the midst of this. And when you see this, it's interesting because when we look at weddings, we think once the ceremony is done, then that is when they're legally bound. However, in the ancient Near East, when that betrothal period started, when they first made their vows, they were then legally married in the eyes of the community, in the eyes of God. Their commitments were made to one another. So even during this year when they're not living together, they haven't physically touched, they haven't been in the same place, if they decided to not go through with a wedding, then it was considered a legal divorce. If the husband were to die, the wife would be considered a widow at that point. And so the seriousness of it was really, um, really present in that. And it was really important for them to celebrate this together, that everybody in the community was a part of this. They were witnesses to the vows that were being made. So the other element that I told you I was going to spend some time on is the torches. When they were making this march from the groom's house to the bride's house, they're walking through the city and they have these torches. Now these torches were round dome torches. They were filled with rags that were soaked in oil and set on fire. And as they walk through in the story, you see 10 different people. And from the outside, they all look the same. They're all carrying a torch. They're all walking together. The only thing that separates them is this flask of oil. Now, what would happen is when their flame would start to go out, they would trim the cloth, they would soak the new part in oil, they would set it on fire again, and their torch would continue to burn. But for those in the story that did not have this flask, they were unable to do that. So the way that the story is set up is that you have five who had a flask of oil and five who didn't. 
You had five who were wise, according to the text, and five who were foolish. At the end of the story, you see that there were five who were led into the banquet, and there were five who were left outside. If we carry this example through, you have five who are led into the kingdom of heaven, and you have five who are cast into the outer darkness. Now let's pick up in verse 5. In verse 5, it says, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Quick question for you. Is God ever late? Not rhetorical. Is God ever late? We just sang about it. No. God is never late. God is always on time. God is working in his timing. So why does it say that God is late in the midst of this? It says that nobody is going to know the day or the hour. So if we project on God when we think he's going to come back and he doesn't come back in our timing, we're going to think that God is late. Now, God is never late, but there's also a reality to sleep. We all need sleep, right? So sleep is not inherently evil. It's not a bad thing. We can't stay up that long. We're not like walruses. We can't stay up for 84 hours straight. That fact is brought to you by Snapple. You're welcome. <laughs> I was literally in the middle of preparing this sermon, and I was drinking a Snapple, and that was my fun fact. And it was like right at this time, I'm like, okay, Lord, apparently you want me to talk about walruses. So here we go. But in the midst of this, in the midst of their sleep, they're laying down, they're sleeping. And then about midnight, they hear this call. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. So they all wake up. And it's only at this point that we see the differentiation between the foolish and the wise. We've all had this moment of panic, right? Where we realize that we're unprepared. Maybe you're making cookies and you start putting all the ingredients in the bowl and you realize, I don't have eggs. I have a bowl full of stuff that's not going to amount to cookies. Or maybe you show up to school one day and the teacher's like, all right, who's ready for the test? And you're like, test? What? This is going to go poorly. Or maybe it's the moment of disappointment when you just realize that this is not going to go the way that I think it's going to go. Like you pull into a parking lot of a Chick-fil-A on Sunday and you just start crying yourself to sleep. You're like, this is not how I projected this day going, right? That sinking feeling that we get when we realize that this is not going to go how I want it. And this is what they hit right here. They realize that they don't have what they need. Now, five of the bridesmaids know that they have oil. So they trim their lamps, they put the oil on, they set their, lamp, their torch on fire, and they're ready. The other five do what most of us would naturally do. They go to the five with oil, and they say, let us have some of your oil so that we can go in as well. And what seems like a really jacked up response, the five that have the oil say, no, there's not going to be enough for you and for us. Go instead and get your own. And it's not like they can go to the Jerusalem Walmart and pick up a flask of oil. Like it's midnight. What are they supposed to do in this moment, right? So they send them off. Now, what's interesting about this is that the oil represents their faith. So those who their faith was burning, was active, was ready, they were ready and they followed the bridegroom in. Those who did not have oil, did not have faith, they were trying to borrow somebody else's faith. And that's not how it works. When Jesus comes, you're not going to be able to stand face to face with Jesus and say, well, I'm, I'm just going to use my parents' faith. My parents are really solid believers or my spouse is a really solid believer. Can I, can I get in on their merits? Because what enables us to enter into the kingdom of heaven is this faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that he made for us. And it's important that those five didn't know this. And the 
probably the most sobering thing in the midst of this whole passage is that there is no second chance given, right? The five go away, and then when they come to the feast and they ask to be let in, it says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. All 10 of them were with the bride. All 10 of them were in the church. They were waiting. They were waiting for Christ's return. Five of them didn't get let in. Now, this isn't prescriptive. This isn't something like, hey, look at the person on your left. Look at the person on your right. One of them's going to hell. That's not what he's saying here. But it should be a sober warning to us that we can check the boxes. We can be from the outside looking like everything's all good. People can look at our lives and say, yeah, they're probably going to heaven. If you were to look at my brother, people would say, he's probably the best person that I've ever been around. But my brother doesn't know Jesus. From the outside, everything looks good but he would not have oil in his lamp. And that's heartbreaking for me. I'm not worried about myself in the midst of this. I'm worried about those who do not know Jesus. For those in your life that don't know Jesus, that think that they're going to get into heaven based on a good person argument or based on the merits of the things that they've done, this becomes the challenge. And Jesus gives us parables all throughout scripture where he talks about those that are separated out. He gives the parable, the wheat and the tares, that there's these two things that grow up side by side and look the same, but then when harvest comes, you realize that one is a weed and one is wheat. And the wheat is harvested and the tares are torn out and they're thrown in the fire. A little bit later in Matthew 25, he talks about the sheep and the goats. He talks about separating out the sheep from the goats. You look at the parable of the soils. When Jesus is talking about the parable of the soils, he's talking about sowing seed. Now the seed is all the same. The difference is the hearts that are letting the seed in and producing fruit. Those that produce fruit are going to be let in in the midst of this. Now, there's another parable in Matthew where he talks about the wedding feast. And the wedding feast, there's all these people that are invited in. He says, go out into the highways and byways. Compel them to come in. I want to fill up this table. Again, he's making this allusion to the kingdom of God and to the inviting people into heaven. He wants as many people there as they can. And then there's this one guy that he singles out who's not wearing the wedding garments. And what it's trying to communicate in the midst of that is that nobody's prepared. When God makes this invitation, he's inviting us in, not based on our merits, but based on his gift to us. And this one guy who's sitting there who's not wearing wedding clothes, he's saying that you are not taking the gift that I've given you. When you stepped into this wedding feast, I offered you my clothing. I offered to clothe you in my righteousness. And you're sitting here trying to sit in your good works. You're trying to earn your way in here, and that's not how it works. And so he casts them out into the outer darkness. Again, Jesus gives these parables all throughout Scripture where he is saying that there is a definitive yes and a definitive no. And what is separating those who believe and those who don't is this faith. Writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Paul tells us that faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Why does he say that? Because in this moment, when Jesus comes back, which he will, our faith is going to be our sight. We're going to see Jesus face to face. It doesn't take faith to believe when somebody's sitting right here. Our hope is going to be fulfilled in that moment. What we've hoped for, this new kingdom that's coming, this kingdom that Jesus is going to establish where there is no more sin, where there is no more pain, there is no more death. There is no more sickness. What we have hoped for, for our whole relationship with Jesus is going to be present. We won't need to hope anymore. 
So what's left is the currency of the kingdom, which is love. And he's going to continue to push us into that. So what do we do with this? That becomes the big question. What are we supposed to do to prepare ourselves to make sure that we're ready? And the first and most obvious thing is that you need to have your own relationship with Jesus. We read John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We can all nod our heads at that. We say, yes, it's clear that I need to be forgiven from my sin. We can all look at ourselves and know I am broken, I am sinful, I am in need of a savior. But what we don't challenge ourselves on very often is turning over the lordship piece. Is Jesus actually Lord of my life? I know that I need to be saved, but has my relationship with him actually meaningfully changed anything in my life? And I'm going to ask a series of questions as I go through these different points, and I want you to ponder these. Hopefully you can write some of them down. But as you think about your relationship with Jesus, has it resulted in you submitting your preferences to his? Have your actions noticeably changed since you began a relationship with Jesus? What about your stewardship, your time, your talents, your treasure? Are you allocating those things differently than you did before? What about your thought life? Have you submitted every thought? Have you taken every thought captive as scripture encourages us to do? Or are you riddled with anxiety? Are you fearful of what's to come? Or can you cling to this, the truths that are in scripture and continue to press into what God's telling you is true? The second thing that I'll say is that we all need to be dressed for battle. And I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage here from Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 17. Paul tells us this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the very words of God that we have access to. Are you putting these things on every day? Do you recognize that you are in the midst of a spiritual battle? I think it's so easy for us to be lulled to sleep because we don't recognize that we're in a battle. When we wake up in the morning, the first thing we do is grab our phone and we start checking social media. We start checking our email. We start looking about what's going on in the world. We're not putting these things on that God tells us, you're getting ready to step into a battle. If you were literally going into a battle, would you want to be equipped for it? We have to look at these things and understand that we need to be dressed for battle. Do you know the truth? 
the only offensive weapon that we're given against Satan is the word of God. If you watch the temptation of Jesus, he wields it perfectly. Satan tries to distort scripture to tempt Jesus the same way he did with Adam and Eve. But Jesus deflects because he knows scripture. Are you practicing righteousness? Every single day we're given the opportunity to compromise in countless ways. Are you choosing right actions? Are you living and acting righteously? Are you waging peace? Over the last two years, our country has been thrown into turmoil over so many things. Politics, race, vaccinations, all of these things have driven a wedge between people. Rather than seeing people as children created in the image of God and inherently valuable, we're looking at them based on a viewpoint that they hold that might be different than us. Are we able to sit down and be peacemakers as Jesus calls us to be in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed are the peacemakers. That's something we need to step into. Are you assured in your salvation? This is something that a lot of people have anxiety about. They begin to wonder, am I really saved? I don't know what my relationship with Jesus looks like. Is it okay to doubt? Is it okay to have these fears? And I would encourage you, spend some time in the book of 1 John. Read that through. It's only going to take you about 20 minutes. Read that over and over and over again. Learn to rightly handle the word of God. Peter gives us a couple encouragements where he tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. He also tells us to be ready in season and out of season to give a defense for that which we believe. Do we have that? Are we ready? Can we tell people why we believe what we believe? And are we humble enough when we don't have an answer to let somebody know? I don't know but I'm going to look into it and I'm going to get back to you because I want to have a conversation because this matters to me. Again, these are all questions that we need to be asking ourselves. The third thing that I'll say is that we need to look and make sure that our life is producing fruit. In all the parables that I talked about, there's this separation between those who believe and those who don't, those who are producing and those who are not. At the end of the age, there's going to be a calling where we are going to stand before Jesus and give an account for whether we had faith in him or not. And then we will get to talk about the things that we did or the things that we didn't do. And all this imagery is important because it's talking about being productive, of stewarding that which God has given us. Every breath that we have is a gift from God. Are we using it to bless and honor him? And I don't want you to hear me say that this is a works-based salvation because that's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God prepared good works in advance for us to walk in. That as we are saved, as we embrace this life and this gift that God has given us, we recognize that God has placed me in a specific family, in a specific neighborhood, in a specific workplace where I can minister to people that nobody else can. That I might be the only representation of Jesus, the only ambassador for Christ that somebody ever meets. Am I being fruitful and productive in that? Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20 says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. The last thing that I want to share with you is an encouragement to have some, some urgency as it relates to this. I think one of the easiest things for us to do is to hear something like this or be challenged by something that's or encouraged by this. And yeah, it's good. I'm going to look into that. My wife and I jokingly call it the manana mentality. We'll, we'll do it tomorrow, right? She asked me to clean up the kids' toys. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. My kids are a tornado. It's going to be just as bad tomorrow. I'm going to clean up. There's going to be a mess. Or the dishes, right? She wants me to want to do the dishes. And I look at a pile of dishes and I'm like, again, there's just going to be more tomorrow. But we make excuses for everything. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too broken. I've been disenchanted with the church. Or the most insidious lie that pretty much every one of us believes, I'm too busy. Now all of these are excuses. These are all things that we do to put off the things that God has put before us. And I remember a friend sticking me to the wall with this one because I used to, my default answer had become, how are you doing? I'm busy. And he said, you know what busy means, right? Being under Satan's yoke. So are you busy going about the things of God? Or are you busy going about the things of Blake? And it was this realization that if I'm not busy doing the things that God has put before me, because I'm too busy doing the things that I want to do, I'm eventually going to lose the opportunity to do the things that God has put before me. That was a huge conviction. It was a good moment from a good friend who spoke truth into my life and encouraged me and challenged me and pushed me to be more intentional with the time that I had and understand that it is a gift from God. I don't want us to think that we can do all these things. Again, that we're, we're out there doing these things so that we're checking boxes for God. That's not what it's about. It's this idea of being ready, of stewarding each day as the gift that it is and giving God an opportunity to shine his light through you to be his hands and feet to the people that only you can reach. So that when the day comes, you're ready. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this word. Every time I reread it and think about it, talk about it, God, I'm challenged and encouraged to do a better job living it. And that's my hope here this morning, that we wouldn't just hear this and recognize it as something that you've challenged us with, but God, that we would directly step into this, that we would begin to think of the people in our sphere of influence that do not know you and how we can love them, how we can love this city, God, that there are so many people in the city of Phoenix who do not know you. How do we step in? And how do we show your love? Lord, as we enter into this next time, I pray that this would be a time of reflection, a time for us to sit with you, to ask you to search our hearts. I'm reminded of Psalm 139, 23, and 24, God, where you say, search me, O God, and know me. Try my anxious heart. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, we can put up a good front. We can let people see from the outside that we have it all together. But you're not fooled by that. I pray that we would take an honest look and let you be our mirror 
and point us towards the things that we need work on, that you would sanctify us and make us look more like your son. Jesus, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity uh, to daily dig into it, to prepare ourselves for battle and to step into that which you have for us. And all your people said,